Let us pray. O Lord, come in power, in might, and show thy mercy upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Jesus tells this parable of the dishonest manager, and it is one of the most confusing, if not the most confusing parable that Jesus ever tells. In fact, preachers avoid it like the plague. It is the third rail of preaching, and nobody wants to touch it. Uh, It has become one of my favorite uh, parables. Uh, In fact, there was the last of the Constantinian emperors, uh, Justin the Apostate, who was no fan of Christianity, and he in fact used this parable to argue against Christianity, saying, see, Jesus is just encouraging you to be dishonest and to be thieving and to use money uh, for unrighteous gains. But is that really what Jesus is saying here in Luke chapter 16? So let's take a look at the parable and see what the Lord Jesus is saying to us even today. Jesus lays out the parable by saying that there are two characters. There's a rich man who is the owner of a large amount of property, and there is a manager uh, who is dishonest. Now, the people in the community have come to the owner and said, the manager is wasting your possessions. And it's remarkable because the owner takes it at face value. He doesn't question it. He simply calls the manager in front of him and fires him on the spot because he already knows the character of his manager. And the owner asks the manager a question that he already knows the answer to. What is it that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. He fires him on the spot, and the manager says what in response? Anybody listening to this in Jesus' day would have assumed that the manager would immediately speak up and plead for his job. I promise I'll do better next time. I'm, I've left that way behind me. Uh, you know, or they're a bunch of liars. Or, you know, that's not the whole story. But he sits there in silence. And in his silence, he shows us two things. One, he is really smart. One of my daughters uh, has mastered this technique. But when I confront her about something, she just sits there and stares at me in silence. Uh, Because she's thinking, what does he actually know about what I've done? Uh, Because she knows if she says something, she might actually be getting herself into more trouble. And in the same way, this dishonest manager uh, doesn't want to give the whole story away, so he holds back. But also in his silence, he assents to his guilt. And he sulks off to procure the account books. And while he's going along, he thinks, what am I to do? What is my future hope of employment? How am I going to provide for myself, possibly a family? He can't do manual labor. He's too ashamed to beg. And he's not up on some sort of high horse saying, those things are beneath me. He's actually being honest about himself. I'm not strong enough to work back-breaking work in the fields. And I don't have any disability that will allow me to beg, so I'm going to have to get out of town as far away as I can or as far away that people don't know me. And maybe I can find employment there. 
But then he hatches an idea. And I love the fact that Jesus doesn't come out and say what the man is going to do, but he allows the story to unfold. He says that he plans on ingratiating himself to the owner's tenants, his debtors. And how does he do this? He summons them one by one. He doesn't get the whole group of them together because then he would run the risk of it only takes one to raise their hand and say, wait a minute, really? And then the whole thing falls apart, but he's smart and he gets them to come in one by one. And he doesn't exchange the usual pleasantries of, you know, good sir. Uh, But he says, quickly, sit down and write this. And they do it. And they do it. And of course, this is a huge windfall for the debtors. Uh, They were sharecroppers, uh, not poor sharecroppers, but they leased the land from the owner in exchange for a part of their produce. And this produce was decided upon before the harvest. And so these are not past debts. They are things to be owed at harvest time. And the reason the amounts are so high is not because of extortion, but because of the high production value of the owner's land. Remember, he's a rich man. And so after he's cooked the books, he returns to the master with the cat who ate the canary grin. And what do you expect? I would expect the master to come down hard on him, but instead he commends him. Now, he's already dodged one bullet because when he fired him on the spot, he actually had two other options. Not only just fire him, but he could have had him jailed. Or he could have actually enslaved the manager and his family until they could work off whatever he had lost due to his mismanagement. But he doesn't do any of those then, and he doesn't do any of those now. Now, you'll notice in verse 8, he's not commended for his dishonesty. He's not commended for doing a dastardly act, but he's commended for what? His shrewdness. Well, what was his shrewdness? When he hatched this plot, everything was riding on one thing, just one thing. The mercy of the owner. The dishonest manager knows the owner well and knows he is a man of generosity. We see in verse 1 that he was so well respected in the community that people went to him and said, this guy's ripping you off. Now, I don't know about you, but no one cares in my mind if a dishonest owner gets ripped off by a dishonest manager. Turnabout is fair play. But not only that, when he sits down with the individual debtors and they change the debt to a lesser amount, they never question why. Well, one, they think that he has the authority of the master because there he is with the image of his office, these account books that are being changed and they know that the master is going to see him and they're wholly unaware of the fact that he's been fired. But also they don't question the reduction because... The owner's that kind of guy. It's not that far-fetched to believe that he actually would do something like that, that he would renegotiate the debt. 
The debtors knew the master well enough to know that he was capable of being so generous. And you can only imagine what happened when they went back home. I mean, think if you had just been told that a significant portion of money that you owed, uh, or even produce, you know, I don't think many of you deal in hams and jellies anymore, but uh, nor did people in Jesus' day as far as that goes. But uh, in a money sense, uh, you would be overjoyed because then all of a sudden you would realize you had more money in your pocket. So there's every likelihood that a party broke out in the village. And so imagine the manager with the books going to the owner who starts looking at them and seeing these reductions. Now, the owner could actually go into the village and say, I fired this guy, so any business that he transacted after the firing is null and void. Continue to party on, but you still owe me the same amount that you originally owed. That's a non-option. Right? That's, that's not really an option. But what the manager is being commended for is understanding the great mercy of the owner. The owner shows the manager mercy even now, and this, ma- this makes me mad. It may make you mad when we see somebody shown God's grace and mercy who doesn't deserve it. They've done something dastardly. They're not the right kind of person. We've tried so hard to earn God's approval, and they've done nothing, and yet God loves them just as much as, they lo- as he loves me. I don't like that. I want this guy to go to jail. Do you, like me, sometimes begrudge the mercy of God? Uh, Lauren and I took our girls down to the Gulf Coast over Labor Day weekend, and Lauren is much sweeter and kinder than I am and buys the children these fun little gifts. And she got them these gigantic beach balls that were not like beach balls. They were made of, like, dodgeball material, so they're the world's largest bouncy ball. Uh, And they were very distinct-looking. And we went to the pool one day, and the girls took one of the balls along, and that night Lauren said, we left the ball at the pool. We go to the beach the next day. Lauren goes to get the ball, comes back empty-handed, said there are some boys playing with our ball in the pool, and I don't want to get into that. Can you go up and get the ball? (laughs) So I go up uh, to get the ball, and uh, at this point, the boys have gotten out of the pool. They have the ball. They're next to mom and dad. And I said, um, said, we left that ball here last night. Uh, uh, Do you mind if, if we take it back? And the boys are just staring at me, and they look at their dad, and the dad says to me, Oh, that's our ball. And I thought, okay. And I said, well, it's a remarkable coincidence that such a unique-looking ball has been purchased by two people and and are vacationing in the same spot. But uh, y'all go ahead, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. And I went back empty-handed, and needless to say, my children were very upset. And we moved from the beach up to the pool where the boys were in the pool playing with the ball. And I told the girls that we lost the ball, that they say that's not our ball. And Lily said, the ball is not lost, it's there. It's right there. And she was so upset that I finally pulled her aside and I said, Lily, look, honey, there's going to come a day when we stand before the great and terrible throne of judgment where the Lord Jesus will reign in all of his righteousness and holiness and we'll have to make an account for all the deeds that we've done in our lives and this family will have to make an account for why that ball (laughs) 
is in their possession. And I pray that they cry out for mercy from the Lord Jesus, otherwise they're going to burn in hell. <laughs> and she nodded deliberately. <laughs> I mean, that's ridiculous. It's a ball. But how often? I don't want to be in heaven with people like that. I don't, I don't want them to have mercy. I, I want them to, to burn. <laughs> but we see even in this parable that we have a God whose property is always to have mercy and that heaven is full of sinners and hell is populated with the self-righteous. This parable is about God's gratuitous grace to sinners. If you have your Bibles open, what is it that Jesus says right before he says this? The tail end of chapter 15 is the parable of the prodigal son. About two sons who don't deserve God's grace. If anything, they deserve judgment. One for his self-righteousness, the older brother, and the younger one for going and squandering his living recklessly and wishing his father dead. And yet the father gives it all up for his boys. He throws a party, and the younger son is there, but the older son is left outside, stuck in his self-righteousness. And Jesus never says whether or not he goes into the party. But then he tells this parable of a dishonest man who understood the mercy of God. All the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Now, where the dishonest manager went wrong was this. He was aware of the owner's mercy and his generosity, but it didn't affect him in the least. In fact, he sinned so that grace might abound all the more. And how many of us are aware of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, but we've never entered into it? Are you aware of his love for you, but not responded to it? Have you simply acknowledged it, or have you been changed by it? Have you thrown yourself upon the mercy of Jesus Christ? Have you experienced it? If not, we're left like the dishonest manager trusting in money or any other idol in order to save ourselves in this life and the next. In worldly matters, people often show more astuteness or shrewdness than God's children do in matters affecting their everlasting salvation. The crooked manager is being praised for looking ahead and making provision for his future needs. He has set his eyes upon something of greater importance than the present. When you come under the lordship of Jesus Christ, when his love has found you out, he has made you his own, and your whole world changes. Money is no longer a means to an end. Your life is no longer your own. 
It's not simply that you are now a Christian, but you find you have a heart for others. You want to invest your life, your time, your talent, your treasure in the lives of others so that they might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ so that when you go to heaven, they might welcome you into eternal habitations. There's a great scene from C.S. Lewis's great divorce where a tour of heaven is being given. And here's the description. First came bright spirits, not the spirits of men who danced in scattered flowers. Then on the left and right at each side of the forest avenue came youthful shapes, boys upon one hand and girls upon the other. If I could remember their singing and write down the notes, no man who read that score would ever grow sick or old. Between them went musicians, and after these, a lady in whose honor all this was being done. I cannot remember now how she was clothed. She was radiant. A great and shining train followed her across the happy grass. Her inmost spirit shone through her clothes, for her clothes in that country are not a disguise. The spiritual body lives along each thread and turns them into living organs. A robe or a crown is there as much of the one wearer's features as a lip or an eye. But I have forgotten, and only partly do I remember, the unbearable beauty of her face. Is it? Is it? I whispered to my God. Not at all, said he. It's someone you've never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived in Golders Green. She seems to be a person of particular importance. She's one of the great ones. You have heard of that fame in this country and fame on earth are two different things. And who are those gigantic people? Look, they're like emeralds who are dancing and throwing flowers before her. Haven't you read Milton? A thousand liveried angels lackey her. And who are all these young men and women on each side? They are her sons and daughters. She must have had a very large family. Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Isn't that a bit hard on their own parents? No. There are those that steal other people's children, but her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. Few men looked on her without becoming, in a certain fashion, her lovers. But it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but truer to their own wives. This is an unremarkable woman who not only knew of the mercy of God, but it had transformed her life so that her own life ministered to those around her. She had spent her unrighteous wealth on righteous things. This is someone who was captured by the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. Do you know of God's gratuitous grace for you? No matter if you are a dishonest manager, a wayward son, a self-righteous son, a sinner, throw yourselves upon him whose property is always to have mercy and see your life changed. Amen.